Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Welcome to the new edition of the No Restraint Podcast. I'm Joyce Kaufman. And of course, it's been a while since I addressed the elephant in the room, which is COVID-19. And I think back to three years ago and all the fear mongering and all the craziness that was going on. It's time to reflect on what really happened and how do we prevent it from ever happening again? That's a big question, and I'm going to the experts for this, frontline nurses and doctors, and of course, Dr. Naomi Wolf, who has had a change of heart and realized that government is really not your friend. I want to start by talking about something I read by Stella Paul in The American Thinker. You know, hospitals should be places that you can trust, you know, places where you get comfort and healing and when your whole life has been shattered by brutal COVID protocols that critics claim turned many hospitals into human experimentations. Well, it's time to talk about that because the victim stories have been muffled by the mainstream media, but they're starting to be slipping through once again. And I think it's important that we talk about some of the things that happened, which really were a nightmare. First and foremost, there are a number of cases in three hospitals in particular in California by 14 bereaved families who claim that the protocols that were being used were literally protocols that killed. And that's something that frontline nurses are collecting and documenting stories about from bereaved families who had family members who entered a hospital hoping they were going to be healed and instead were led to bizarre and tortured experimentation. It really is an outrage when you think about all the ventilators that we were told were necessary and that in effect were actually harming patients. I find it heartbreaking when I read their stories and they all have like a haunting similarity a feeling that you're caught in a nightmare from which you can't wake up. And it's pretty predictable. The ritual process and progress was first, the patient was isolated from all of their family members and loved ones and even other patients. And then they were monitored in a manner that appears to be overly zealous. Next, the patient is diagnosed with COVID-19. Even if they came to the hospital, because they broke their arm. Then they get bullied into getting remdesivir or a bunch of other medications that basically 
The only people that had ever taken them before were Ebola patients who there was no other cure for. Then, according to the California study, BiPAP machines were used at a very high rate, making it very difficult for the patient to breathe. I know it's unbearably painful to think about, especially since some of us had family members who were subjected to this kind of protocol, and we don't know whether we're partially to blame for allowing it. But it's time to talk about it. What about all the patients who were left alone to die, writhing in agony? What about all the studies we're reading now where where psychiatrists are brought in to diagnose why the people are so agitated when they're given remdesivir or sedated with the drugs that made it tough to breathe against the BiPAP ventilator, what it was like for the victim, and that's what they were, victims, who were being denied food and sometimes even water? What about the ones who wanted to summon help but they had placed their phones and call buttons out of reach. In the final days of their lives, some of these people were left to rot in skeletal corpses with bed sores. Is this really America? It's almost impossible to comprehend the magnitude of this moral collapse. How did we find a medical profession that was so frightened and so overwhelmed that they stopped helping people and instead just presided over enforcing rules and protocols that weren't healing at all and turned hospitals into chambers of horror? The answer is quite simple to me. It's always the same answer, money. You see, the federal government incentivized hospitals to carry on in this way. Our formerly trusted medical community of hospitals and physicians effectively became bounty hunters for your life. It does explain that the two COVID emergency acts from the government created catastrophic conditions. The trillion dollar stimulus package, which was passed in 2020, purportedly to ease the financial impact, actually provided gigantic bonuses to hospitals to institute federal protocols on COVID, basically ensuring that nobody was allowed to speak up against what could be perceived of today as really poor studies. The darkest of all of the stories I read was on the War Room Daily Clout where the Pfizer documents were analyzed. Pfizer's latest release tranche of internal documents, which the FDA sought a court to keep hidden for 75 years, confirms that Pfizer knew that women who had been exposed to the vaccine, including prior to pregnancy, were sustaining spontaneous abortions and miscarriages. Pfizer knew that exposure, as they defined it, included sexual intercourse with vaccinated men, as well as skin contact and inhalation. They knew that 19% of the babies identified in the first three months of the study sustained adverse events, many of them serious. Babies in this section of the Pfizer documents sustained respiratory distress, including from air sacs leaking lungs between the walls of the lungs and the chest. Babies and fetuses were dying. 
an interview with a Northern California longtime midwife by the name of Ellen Jasmer revealed that she's seeing a great deal of this. Babies who seem fine at birth go home, but who are rushed to the hospital within a day with respiratory distress. And Pfizer knew in April of 2021 that this could happen. This, by the way, is the kind of abnormal, flattened, damaged placenta that nurse midwife Ellen Jasmer is now seeing in her practice. You can see pictures of them on the internet. She says she sees almost no normal placentas anymore. Miss Jasmer describes the horrors of the delivery room these days and the calcified, damaged placentas and babies in respiratory distress that are now common in her practice. Fetal poles with no heartbeats and amniotic sacs without any fetuses, along with other horrors. The documents make use too, of the bizarre phrase, missed abortions. Why would you use such a phrase in an internal document about a spontaneous abortion or a miscarriage? In addition to damage to the fetuses and babies via the mom's injections, the new tranche of documents also reveal that the PEG in vaccinated mom's breast milk causes horrendous damage to tiny newborns trying to nurse. That story was broken about contaminated breast milk a long time ago, but this tranche of new documents adds confirmation to the fact that Pfizer knew it was poisoning vaccinated women's breast milk. The babies in the documents who nursed from vaccinated moms had peeling skin, blurred vision, agitation, convulsions, rashes, fevers, myalgia, vomiting, inflammation of tissues, tissue edema, and a whole bunch of other horrendous conditions. With so many babies in distress, Dr. Rochelle Walensky called a major White House press conference at which she declared that the vaccines were safe and effective and launched an aggressive PR campaign to urge and bully and recommend that pregnant women receive mRNA vaccines for, quote, the safety of their babies. Dr. Walensky was guilty of these shocking lies in her April 23, 2021 press conference. She said, moving on, I want to share a new study that was published this week by CDC scientists. On Wednesday, the New England Journal of Medicine published the preliminary findings of post-COVID-19 vaccine surveillance in pregnant persons. First and foremost, what is a pregnant person? Women get pregnant. Clinical trials, she said, of COVID-19 vaccines did not include pregnant people, leaving us with limited data on the safety of vaccination in pregnant people and babies to date. Through county and countrywide surveillance using the CDC vSafe app and the vSafe pregnancy registry, as well as the vaccine adverse event system reporting system, we were able to follow over 35,000 pregnant people who were vaccinated. Pregnant people experienced the same side effects as others following vaccination. We were also able to follow in detail more than 3,900 pregnant women 
and over 800 of whom have completed their pregnancies. Whoa, did she say women? Yeah, she did. Importantly, she said, no safety concerns were observed for people vaccinated in the third trimester or safety concerns for their babies. As such, CDC recommends that pregnant people, and we're back to people, receive the COVID-19 vaccine. We know that this is a deeply personal decision, and I encourage people to talk to their doctors or primary care providers to determine what is best for them and for their baby. Really, but their doctors too were terrorized about telling the truth. If you read Naomi Wolf's book, The Bodies of Others, she'd already taken apart V-safe, which is the non-science pathetic excuse for a surveillance system for pregnant people, which is not in fact a double blind study in any way, but is rather a phone application staffed not by physicians or scientists, but by a call center to which strangers you're supposed to self-report your miscarriage or spontaneous abortion a totally normal thing to want to do when you have just lost your baby. This pathetic substitute for science, this phone app, is also designed to stop tracking women and babies right when newborn babies are going to reveal problems, if problems exist. Can you say AI is affecting everything, including science? Dr. Rachel Walensky hid from Americans and the world's women the fact that Pfizer, in its in-depth internal documents, had calmly concluded that the company was injuring babies and fetuses, actually murdering them, and she called attention, rather, to the awesome outcomes revealed or perhaps engineered by a thoroughly gamed phone app. These are the stories that nobody is willing to talk about or tell because immediately you'll be branded a science denier or a COVID vaccine denier. Look at RFK Jr. He has announced he's going to run in the Democratic primary against Joe Biden. There'll be no debates, and you will hear nothing about the vaccine, because, of course, that's one of his principal issues on which he's running. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I also wanted in today's No Restraint podcast to talk a little bit about the college kids who unionized Amazon. And I saw this on the free press because I think that's where you get most of the real news these days. Substack, thank you, there is a Substack. Anyway, this has come from an article by Mary Kay Ling. And what she's talking about is how a year ago, just last month, the American labor movement scored its greatest victory 
in maybe like a generation when Amazon employees in Staten Island voted to organize their warehouse under the Amazon Labor Union, the ALU. It was the first and remains the only of Amazon's 110 active U.S. fulfillment centers to unionize. Workers from the massive JFK 8 Fulfillment Center shouted for joy on a Brooklyn sidewalk outside the office of the National Labor Relations Board when the results, 2,654 for, 2,131 against, were announced. ALU leader Christian Smalls popped champagne as photographers snapped away. But the rapturous press coverage of Smalls, a character known for his distinctive do-rags and shades, mostly omitted mention of the decidedly non-working-class stiffs pictured next to him. It turns out that the ALU's rise was made possible by college-educated true believers, three of whom, Madeline Wesley of Wellesian University, Julian Mitchell Israel of Oberlin, and Justine Medina of Marymount, Manhattan, appeared front and center in the famous photos of the union's win. When I tell workers I have a college degree, they're always like, what are you doing here? They're just in shock. They think I'm crazy, Cassio Mendoza, age 24, told me laughing. I'm like, you know, I'm just here trying to make sure the union goes through. Mendoza, a self-described socialist film producer, grew up in L.A., and earned a communications degree from Northwestern University in 2020. After Mendoza met Smalls at a protest outside Bezos' L.A. mansion, the union leader invited him to join the movement, and the recent grad relocated to Staten Island. He soon became the ALU's director of communications, making flyers, producing its newspaper, and using his filmmaking expertise to create viral TikTok videos that elevated the union's profile. Mendoza is a salt, an activist who seeks work in a non-union shop expressly to organize it, like Amazon's warehouses, where workers complain of dehumanizing conditions that push annual turnover to 150%. This means that if you take a job at a fulfillment center, one year later, Everyone you started with will be gone. Half the people who replace them will be gone too. It was extremely easy to get a job at Amazon, Mendoza said. You fill out an application and two weeks later you're hired. If you have a beating pulse, you're good to go. Officially, the salts don't exist. It's not something the union is part of, ALU spokesperson Evangeline Byers said. People like that, they're not able to connect with the workers. Unofficially, it's another story. It was very impactful, said Dana Miller, who helped launch the union in April of 2021, but left on bad terms with Smalls. The ALU organizing committee that won was, in the end, about half comprised of SALTs. Jason Anthony of Brooklyn, another Staten Island ALU founder and ex-committee member, said, referring to the SALTs, we thought... They're really committed to the cause if they're willing to move across the country. So we were like, the more the merrier. Small's attitudes towards the salts, meanwhile, is hard to pin down. In a May 2022 interview with The Dig, a podcast put out by the socialist magazine Jacobin, the head of the ALU said, we have some dedicated salts. 
We need them. With the bargaining unit we have, we're talking 8,300. It's not going to come from just workers. But in the same interview, Smalls also distinguished between SALTs and real Amazon employees. Their task, Smalls said, referring to the SALTs, was and is to support the workers. The term SALT stretches back to the 19th century and refers to how mine bosses salted their own mines with gold dust to make them appear more valuable to investors. A group of construction unions in Rochester, New York, appears to have pioneered the tactic in the 1860s. More recently, SALTs have helped the organizing of Starbucks baristas, Chipotle dishwashers, and burrito makers, and of course, Amazon Fulfillment Center Associates. The new salting movement had been fueled by young left-wing activists, Young Democratic Socialists of America, which is the campus branch of Democratic Socialists of America, preaching the gospel at colleges. Jacobin declaring that salting built the early American labor movement and can revive it today. Last year, according to an internal survey, thousands of DSA members voiced interest in salting, targeting an array of industries and corporations. A March 2022 video of Gianna Reeve, a Starbucks organizer, confronting Starbucks founder and then interim CEA Howard Schultz went viral, energizing many would-be salts. Reeve is not a salt, but was subtly nudged into unionizing by a group of them. Those persuaded to join the Amazon cause not only had a college degree, but in many cases came from well-off families. Among those who joined was Madeline Wesley of Davie, Florida. Daughter of a prominent labor lawyer, Wesley graduated in 2020 from Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, where tuition, room, and board run $82,000, more than twice the salary of the average Amazon warehouse associate. She came to the ALU by way of Seth Goldstein, an ALU attorney. The two had met while involved in an effort to unionize Wesleyan staff. In early 2022, a GoFundMe campaign that Wesley launched for the ALU raised nearly $442,000. Brett Daniels became the ALU's Director of Organizing after arriving in Staten Island from Chandler, Arizona. As an undergraduate at the University of Arizona, he was the student government's executive diversity director and had been an organizer later with the Fight for $15 movement in Tucson. Matt Cusick of Sacramento dropped out of the creative publishing and critical journalism program at the New School in New York City for a warehouse job in 2021. He was the union's communications lead during the JFK 8 vote. Julian Mitchell Israel, who grew up in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and attended Grace Church School, where parents pay nearly $60,000 a year to ensure their children will matriculate at Ivy League universities, reportedly sent a resume to Smalls after graduating from Oberlin College with a political science major. Mitchell Israel had worked on Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign while still in high school and assisted Madeline Wesley on the ALU's failed union vote at a second Staten Island warehouse, LDJ-5, back in May. Unionizing Amazon is a rekindling of the labor movement around the country, she told the Oberlin Review. 
This movement is building worker power for workers' power's sake. In an exhausted and exuberant Facebook post she published after the JFK aid victory, Justine Medina said she was lucky to be recruited into this effort as assault by the ALU's Worker Organizing Committee because of my organizing experience with the YCL, the Young Communist League. While a senior at Marymount Manhattan College, she attended an Occupy Wall Street demonstration with a professor. We can have the revolution we deserve, and we can win a better world, a free socialist world for everyone. Like most of her fellow salts, she will not respond to comments about it. It's not a great surprise that 20 and 30-somethings who came of age in the wake of the housing and financial crisis graduated with unprecedented debt into the so-called gig economy and are less likely than older generations to marry or own real estate. They're ripe for organizing. Joseph McMartin, a labor historian at Georgetown University, said salting at Amazon and elsewhere is not just an ideological commitment. These people are feeling the dysfunction of our labor markets. He added that the shifting nature of work in the U.S. has helped blur the distinction between the college and non-college educated. Sixty or seventy years ago, he said, you could get a job at U.S. Steel or at an auto plant and spend your whole working life there. That job was who you were. Now people move from one job or career space to another with great fluidity. Over the past generation or so, there's been a loosening between the relationship between work and identity. That makes it easier for young people who came from a college setting to think of themselves as a worker who has something in common with other workers. This emerging working class of college graduates is also more likely to transcend the racial and gender boundaries that the ownership class has traditionally used to keep workers divided. They're bringing a lot of hope to social change, to the construction of a truly multiracial democracy. Salts are particularly drawn to Amazon fulfillment centers because they are extraordinarily tough places to work, a symbol of the unseen, backbreaking labor that actually forms the core of our supposedly digital economy. It's more dangerous to work at an Amazon warehouse than it is to work in a coal mine or for the Department of Sanitation, Staten Islander Rena Cummings, a JFK 8 veteran ALU member, said, you're just disposable. According to a report compiled by several unions, in 2021, 6.8 Amazon workers' employees out of 100 suffered a serious injury. Amazon employees tend to suffer from musculoskeletal disorders like hernias, tendinitis, spinal degeneration, and joint injuries. They have also contended with miscarriages, heart attacks, deep vein thrombosis, and repetitive stress injuries. Staten Islander Maureen Donnelly lasted just 12 days at JFK 8 when it opened in 2018. It was brutal, she said. It felt like they were setting us up for failure. Her solitary 10-hour shift as a stower had her climbing up and down a stepladder hundreds of times an hour. She said she lost five pounds. They could market it as the Amazon diet, and her ankles ballooned. I had to ask permission just to pee. I felt so dehumanized. Clearly, in the hierarchy of this place, there's Jeff, then the robots, and then the rest of the humans that work their way down below. Amazon is actually encouraging high turnover. 
For one thing, if they keep you around, you're going to cost more as your pay bumps up over time. But more importantly, if you stay, you're more likely to start forming relationships with other workers and organizing. This is the new age. This is a real cross between socialists and quasi-communists and the working class in America. And we have nobody to blame but ourselves. You see, Amazon's salts were our children. They were the children of the so-called me generation. We said, whatever you want, just go get it. Don't be concerned about what it does to your fellow man or what it means to society in general. And that's why you have these disaffected college graduates doing the union organizing in today's modern world. I hope you learned something on today's No Restraint podcast, whether you were more intrigued by the subject of COVID-19's aftermath and the horrors being exposed, or whether you knew nothing about the salts in the unionizing business. Now you know something you can talk about at a dinner party. Don't forget, I appreciate you listening to the No Restraint podcast, and I'll be back next week with a new one. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.